Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast, powered by Big Wig Podcasts. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, and we are delighted to have as our guest today one of America's foremost shipping experts, John McCown. John is a co-founder and former CEO of Trailer Bridge. He is the founder of Blue Alpha Capital, uh, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Navy League's Center for Maritime Strategy. He is incredibly knowledgeable, and I am looking forward to learning along with our listeners today as John sets the record straight about the economic competitiveness of the domestic maritime industry, how American maritime serves Puerto Rico, and the role of Maritime and building out offshore wind in the U.S. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jennifer. Very pleased to be here. Let's get started. Um, first, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role in the maritime industry over many years? I'd be pleased to. I, I've been uh, spent about four decades in the maritime sector in, in both operating and investment positions. Uh, much of that time was 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 um, uh, at the at the Jones Act uh, continuum carrier that I co-founded and led for some 15 years. And then I had about five years at a um, hedge fund where I, I headed up all their investments. Um, uh, in addition to dozens of investments in, in large international shipping companies, um, uh, we led the recapitalization of OSG, the largest uh, U.S. flag or Jones Act tanker company. Uh, my efforts now are really kind of focused on some entrepreneurial uh, projects in the space. Um, I also enjoy writing about maritime uh, and, and kind of giving uh, uh, lectures and, and, and advice in areas that kind of fit with my, uh, my background. Fantastic. We really appreciate your being with us today to share your experience. So let's talk about the Jones Act, which, as you well know, uh, is the foundational law of American maritime that requires vessels moving cargo between U.S. ports to be owned, built, and crewed by Americans. From your perspective, why is the Jones Act so important? Well, I'm, a, I'm an unabashed supporter of the Jones Act, and I also believe in free trade. Um, I, I actually don't see those two to be in conflict because the, the Jones Act is a unique, uh, the, the, our industry is unique. It involves both, uh, uh, both national security and, to me, kind of basic issues of, of fairness and equity. Um, the Jones Act is really a foundational part of our merchant marine, uh, and anyone who doesn't think our merchant marine plays an important national security role, they just don't really know what they're talking about. Um, the basic issue of equity and fairness also doesn't get the attention that I think it deserves. Uh, American laws, regulations, and our labor practices uh, should apply to all domestic industries. Moving cargo by water from one point in the U.S. to another is just as much a domestic industry as moving that same cargo from, say, Chicago uh, to Atlanta by rail or road. Uh, so our laws should, should apply, perhaps because um, uh, much of uh, the, the Jones Act kind of occurs out of sight. Uh, people don't recognize it as being part of our, our domestic uh, uh, economy, but it is. Um, and, and so those, those, those very same things, the laws, regulations, and labor practices, that is the reason for the difference in the cost of the Jones Act. Uh, what, what, what happens, unfortunately, the critics uh, take, take those limited cost differences and they exaggerate them and they twist them out of place and, and you end up with something that really is unrecognizable. What they're really fundamentally saying is that one form of domestic commerce should operate outside of our economic 
system. Uh, uh, signaling out one, one industry uh, just, just isn't basically uh, fair, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've done a terrific John, uh, job, John, dissecting some fuzzy math and some, I'll be charitable, poorly researched claims by some Jones Act critics. Um, what are the biggest whoppers you've seen and what's the real story? Well, the, the baseless criticism that comes out of, out of certain entities uh, involves both deception and, and kind of their favorite, what I call kind of a three-card money trick, uh, uh, focusing on the bill cost multiple. Uh, you know, first they exaggerate that bill cost multiple. They talk of it as being five times. They used to previously refer to the multiple as six to eight times until the source that they referred to said, hey, that's not, not accurate. You need to, uh, 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 you know, not use that anymore. Second, and more importantly, by focusing on that bill cost multiple, they want people to believe that the resulting cost to the customer is that same multiple. And that's where, particularly in the container space, it's just deceitful. Uh, you know, uh, the largest cost for vessels, fuel cost, isn't impacted whether you're Jones Act or not Jones Act. And then on top of it, uh, the ship itself, including that fuel cost, is really a small uh, a minority of your overall cost. Um, what I've seen consistently in the work of the critics is they're, they're always off by about a factor of 10, and it's purposeful. Um, they, 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 they know the numbers aren't as big, and they, I, guess they, I guess they recognize that to win the hearts and minds of people to change the Jones Act, they know that nobody's going to make a move based on the real modest cost. So they just exaggerate them uh, to the point where they're unrecognizable. So, John, when you talk about the build cost model, you're saying critics are looking at the cost to build a vessel in a foreign shipyard versus a U.S. shipyard, and they're saying that's the cost impact to the consumer of goods moved by that vessel? Exactly, exactly. And they purposely picked the build cost model because that is the biggest delta. But they just constantly hammer on that to make people think, to imply that that's the uh, resulting rate increase. And, and there's... It, it, it just is, is so far off that it's, um, it's ridiculous. I think that's an important point. Um, John, one of your mentors was Malcolm McLean, the inventor of container shipping, uh, which was a pioneering contribution of American maritime to the U.S. economy and really the global economy. What do you say to people who say the Jones Act stifles competition and innovation? Well, again, I say that they just don't know the history. Um, uh, some of the uh, the, the key innovations uh, in maritime uh, grew out of the Jones Act. Malcolm, of course, uh, started uh, container shipping within the Jones Act. The first 10 years of container shipping was solely in the Jones Act. Uh, the supertanker itself has its root, root in the Jones Act. D.K. Ludwig, uh, who had a shipyard that uh, built his own tankers, it was in the Jones Act that you had the first LNG vessels, the first diesel electric vessels, um, you know, a whole uh, uh, array of kind of initiatives, uh, not only in the past, but that are kind of continuing today, uh, you know, uh, uh, within the Jones Act. And, and so also when you think of the Jones Act, it's a, it's a whole giant system. It's not just the vessels. It's the professionals, it's the naval architects that work on the design um, uh, that, that kind of comes into, into being. So I happen to believe, I think, 
uh, America is still the greatest shipbuilder in the world. That shipbuilding is is focused on naval vessels. Um, you know, no country in the world can build the aircraft carriers that we are. Uh, we can. But all of that is kind of tied into the Jones Act. Uh, you know, years ago, there was a gentleman um, at a conference uh, who worked for Electric Boat who made the statement that the, the Jones Act is what won the Cold War. And it was a partisan crowd, and he kind of stopped him in, in, in his tracks. But then he went on to say, that, you know, it was really, in his view, their submarines and the quiet technology that won the Cold War. But he went on to say that without the naval architects and the engineering expertise, all of which are kind of tied directly to the Jones Act, uh, he just doesn't think that they would have been able to do it. So it's really, a, it, it's part of a of a larger piece. And, and the Jones Act uh, uh, continues to be innovative. The Jones Act is the very first place that 53-foot um, containers move on, on vessels. So I, I, I think there's still innovation there. I think we need to um, continue to show more, more thought leadership. And, and I'm excited over what, 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 could, what could be done still going forward in the Jones Act. Uh, that's great stuff. I, I think you're right that that history is not understood by many Jones Act critics. And I want to get to some of the exciting opportunities of the future in just a few minutes. But let me stay on security for just a sec, because, you know, at this time of really government-wide attention to the maritime ambitions of China, I am struck by the disconnect with Jones Act critics who advocate opening our shipping and shipbuilding markets to foreign interests. What do you say to that? I, I also, Jennifer, it's, uh, it's, it's never made sense, uh, and, and it makes even less sense today. Uh, you know, China, uh, particularly with China's saber rattling on Taiwan, um, you know, China is under no misconception that their merchant marine isn't part and parcel of their of their military capabilities. That's why they subsidize um, uh, their industry so significantly. Um, for instance, just one Chinese company in the last 17 years has received over 1.8 billion of direct government subsidies. That's over uh, 100 million per year just for one company. Uh, you know, and, and half of those years, that direct subsidy was more than uh, more than the net income of the company. So uh, uh, you know, they're under. Uh, but no, no illusion, you know, the Jones Act is today a very meaningful part of our merchant marine. And it's simply crazy to think that we should be uh, shrinking our merchant marine when we desperately need to be growing it. Uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of is a reminder that large conventional wars, you know, are not things of the past. It's also a reminder of the very important uh, uh, issues related to logistics. You know, in a hypothetical environment, Invasion uh, by China of Taiwan, uh, the sea lift capacity or the sea lift needs will be massive because you're literally moving things to the other side of the world. Um, and with China's extraordinary, you know, something on the order of half of the cargo vessels in the world probably owe their existence to moving freight to or from China. And, and uh, it's, it's readily uh, 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 easy to see that they would use that as a form of economic coercion. So, so in the event that we found ourselves in, 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 in a conflict or, or coming to the aid of Taiwan, um, the only vessels we can really count on, uh, you know, are American U.S. flag vessels with, with uh, American mariners. So again, it's just um, uh, absolutely crazy to think that, you know, at a time where we need a larger merchant marine more than ever, and, and I'm encouraged that people in Washington are, are starting to, uh, to see that much more clearly. 
a much broader group, you know, of really the kind of the Achilles heel we have in our merchant marine. And to kind of, with that as a backdrop, to somehow think we ought to move away from the Jones Act is, is just, as you said, simply crazy. Welcome to American Maritime Voices, your place to be heard. As part of American Maritime, you are critical to moving and securing our country. And now you can help tell the story of Maritime and be part of key decisions that affect it. American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. It's free to become a voice, and we'll keep you informed of what's happening in Washington so you can help change the course of issues that matter most to you. As a voice, you'll get monthly updates, have access to podcasts and videos, and receive action alerts when your voice is needed most. The future of Maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. You know, John, you mentioned these massive subsidies that uh, China gives to uh, shippers and shipbuilders, and and they're not the only country that does that. Some U.S. allies do as well because they recognize the importance of maritime to their security. But just for a second, what would the playing field look like if foreign subsidized vessels were unleashed on the U.S. domestic market? Well, that's where you get into what I think would be clear economic consequences to at least some of the shippers, in addition to these clear national security um, issues. But what would happen, in my view, and, and again, I think this is never really talked about by the critics, but the foreigners would take over that service, um, not by continuing the direct shuttle services that exist today, but they would merge them into part of their their international services. So, so for, for instance, in Hawaii and Alaska, they would be stopped at those ports outbound while they're going to Asia. And so that direct shuttle service would be replaced by stop-by service. But those shippers, a much smaller group, but those shippers that rely on that inbound direct transit, all of a sudden are... are are faced with a terrible situation because they would have to put their cargo, you know, on the vessel uh, in the when it stopped en route. And so their transit time would go up by a factor of four. Uh, worse than that, their rates would go up by a larger factor. So all of a sudden, the, the pineapple shipper out of Hawaii, the rum shipper out of Puerto Rico, um, they have to go the long way. And again, that transit time would be much longer, um, but they, they also would have to to pay a much higher rate because they're uh, by definition they're going to have to to match or beat the rate that these uh, foreign companies get on their head haul and that was a bad enough unintended consequence or a clear consequence that would come about that the critics don't talk about and perhaps they just don't care about the the pineapple shippers or the rum shippers what's important those in, in all of those communities those are people those are industries that create jobs and and so what we've learned in the past two years from the pandemic is that it could be actually be much worse than that. Because during the pandemic, in the international trade lanes, um, uh, with, with rates spiking up to where it was up to $20,000 for a container from Asia, 
what the international carriers were doing was 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 not taking export cargo from the U.S. Really, just saying, you know, we would prefer to move that container empty because we can get it back to Asia quicker. You would have the same exact thing with these stopover services. And so on top of the clear problem for the inbound shipper, all of a sudden the outbound shipper might find that, that he would be denied a load unless he was willing to meet that $20,000 price. It's also not even, uh, it's, 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 it's readily thinkable that, that they might even skip that call. So, so all of a sudden you're looking at, um, you know, for, for a modest increase, if it goes as as best you can, those inbound shippers are just just hammered. And then on top of it, you you have the potential um, disruption, service disruption, and rate disruption by being all of a sudden linked to that um, incredibly chaotic international lane. In contrast, throughout the pandemic, you know Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico all had consistent, stable service. So that's so again, that's a that's a factual thing that you can see happening when people kind of talk about a hypothetical uh, uh, repeal, and and it just um, uh, they don't talk about it because they that doesn't fit with their narrative. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And let's, John, stay on Puerto Rico for a minute if we could, because it seems like a lot of the Jones Act misinformation out there focuses on Puerto Rico. You've, you've touched on this a little bit, but uh, what do people in Puerto Rico and the U.S. mainland really need to understand about the role of American maritime in supporting Puerto Rico and what that means for uh, the Puerto Rican economy? Well, they, they have been focused on Puerto Rico. That's when I first became aware. The main critic, of course, of the Jones Act is Cato Institute. And they've developed an echo chamber of people repeating what they say. Uh, and they started by attacking Puerto Rico, and that remains a, a, a particular target. Um, about two years ago, they did what they, um, a so-called study, and, and I put that in large quotation marks. It was uh, some 50 pages, but it was one of the um, the poorest put together things I had ever seen, both in terms of its methodology and just in terms of um, uh, uh, just raw math errors. But but what it what it what it claimed in the end was that the Jones Act cost Puerto Rico 1.2 billion dollars a year. You start with the fact that the total revenue of the Puerto Rico trade at the time was was 800 million. Uh, and then you go back to, to my numbers in terms of only about 15% of that would be changes. The There is no elasticity. You know, all of the freight moving to Puerto Rico is what is consumed. But when I, when I got into the study, I, I really couldn't believe how poorly put together it was. For instance, not only was their methodology wrong, but, but they had massive, um, just simple math sloppiness. Uh, you know, they, they used a method methodology that tried to to tie it into rates being the same in other foreign markets and and on all the port pairs they use their their mileages were, were off by by as much as 50 percent so it really was um it's it's rather crude term but it was really a garbage in garbage out study uh that that just was was kind of a number salad thrown up against it i've pointed out to cato in detail all of the errors and when you correct all of their 
Whereas even with their flawed methodology, uh, the cost was no more than one-sixth of what they, they're, they're claiming. You know, Cato continues to have that study on, on the website. They know it's wrong. Um, you know, they, they've kind of engaged in a process of they don't really do any real research. They take what somebody else does and kind of point <laughs> to that as, as having some credibility. But, but that study is, um, is, is just, just terribly wrong. Uh, again, I'm getting kind of deeper into the weeds, but um, it, 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 you know, I've studied the, um, the reckless statements and, and, and uh, inaccuracies that have been coming out, and, and I just wanted to share a, a little bit of that. Now, we appreciate this kind of sophisticated analysis, which goes way deeper than a lot of the uh, facile and just wrong uh, statements that are out there. Let's shift gears a little bit. I chair the American Maritime Partnerships Offshore Wind Committee, uh, ensuring that this exciting new industry in the U.S. has a made-in-America supply chain is a major priority. Um, can you share your perspective on the role of American Maritime in building out offshore wind in the U.S.? Well, again, that's a, that's a domestic industry, and we, we should be involved in it. Uh, you know, there have already been some, some loopholes kind of in the use of offshore vessels, and, and with this growing uh, 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 market for offshore wind, not only in terms of the turbine installation vessels, but all of the allied vessels, that needs to be ours. It needs to be ours for several reasons. One, it's a growing area and can be a lot of, lot of jobs for our mariners. And, and that's the key thing, uh, the most key thing in terms of the national defense aspect of our merchant marine is to continue to have a pipeline of jobs that uh, graduates from our, 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 our merchant uh, marine schools and the merchant marine academy and the state schools have jobs because if that kind of withers away, all of a sudden you're kind of losing that, that core ability of those, those mariners. On top of that, uh, these vessels, particularly the turbine installation vessels, will be many jobs in our shipyards. Um, I've actually uh, been very involved the past two years. I'm, I'm working with a group that is, uh, uh, wants to build a series of Jones Act turbine installation vessels. So I've really kind of done a, done a deep dive in that. And one of the things that kind of, uh, besides it fitting more square with our, our capabilities and, and you know, high-end vessels, uh, one of the things that has become clear to me in a detailed analysis I did, um, the, the Jones Act incremental cost uh, of using a Jones Act turbine installation vessel, um, I calculated 1.4% of the total project cost. That's based on the acknowledged cost of an offshore wind turbine, each individual offshore wind turbine, of about $40 million apiece. And so, yes, that translates that 1.4% is something in the order of 600,000, but it's still, it's only 1.4%. And, and I, I've never heard of a capital project, you know, any sort of capital project is based on estimates, and, and but there's really no such thing as a project where it's a, uh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, which people are talking about offshore wind, and when you have 1.4% more cost, uh, you know, it's a no-go. So I, I happen to think, and I've, I've published that analysis, and I've yet to have 
anybody in the offshore wind, wind sector challenge it. So um, I, I, I think shame on the people that are trying to do an end run of that. They've known what the Jones Act was. They've known that these vessels are required. If anything, I think that things will be tightened up on that. And I think it should, because that's a growing area. That's a growing area for maritime jobs. And it, and it, and it quite frankly, it should be ours. Absolutely. John, what would you say to those, and we hear this from time to time, who suggest that the Jones Act is somehow an impediment to the build-out of offshore wind in the U.S.? Well, again, I, I, I you know, when you, when you, when you're looking at 1.4%, uh, that can't rationally be an impediment. I, I understand people always prefer to have less cost, but uh, they knew going into the uh, you know that the that the Jones Act would apply. Um, uh, the 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 notion and the, the other thing that you know at no time, including some of the bigger contractors that have a pipeline of various uh, projects, at no time have they um, come out uh, with an RFP. You know there there are companies out there that probably could have a need to use a turbine installation vessel consistently for the next uh, 10 years. So why haven't they put out an RFP saying, uh, you know, would anybody, uh, if the if you build a, a turbine installation vessel under this spec, we'll charter it for 10 years. They, 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 they haven't done that, um, I think, because they're looking to kind of have it both ways, you know, to say, well, there are no Jones Act vessels, therefore we need to use foreign vessels. Um, you know, by our own estimates, um, there, there's a need for at least about eight Jones Act turbine installation vessels. Again, that's the most complex vessel at the top of the top of the hilt, but there's an array of additional vessels that are needed. And so the people that are building these, the contractors, and they're mostly farm, um, but they, they, they need to recognize that the Jones Act isn't going to go away. Uh, uh, you know, rather than kind of complain and go around saying that, you know, in the absence, and again, I go back to that 1.4%. Let somebody go in front of Congress and say that something that they're all excited about, and right now there's talk of... Oh, over 2,000 offshore wind turbines, um, and the utilities clearly have determined that offshore wind is the most cost-effective renewable wind, uh, even though it costs more than conventional right now. Let somebody really accurately say that 1.4% additional cost makes it a no-go. It just isn't rational. John, this has been terrific. This is a masterclass, and I love the way you've taken us, uh, you know, kind of historically, the Jones Act impact on uh, U.S. maritime and the economy to this uh, exciting new frontier of offshore wind and maritime. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. That is all for this episode of the American Maritime Partnership. Um, to learn more about the great work of the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, Time, please visit AmericanMaritimePartnership.com and please share this podcast with friends and colleagues who would benefit from learning more. I'm Jennifer Carpenter signing off. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. 
After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one?